The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Ariel. How do you build a church? Now, if that question is about how to build a church building, you shouldn't ask me. There are three people here you could ask. I'm not one of them. You could ask Adam, Darnell, our executive pastor. He's the brains behind the operation. Or Don Curry. Though normally he only likes to focus on drainage and dirt. In this case, he had to look at a few more things. Or you could ask Ed Loeffler. Ed is one of our members who works for Don. He was up here every week on site. Though I'll warn you, you'll probably just get a sarcastic answer if you ask Ed. But hopefully you realize that building a church building is not the same as building a church. Because a church is not the building it meets in. A church is the people of God. So how do you build a church? I think some people think building a church is like building a fantasy football team. I don't know if you've ever played fantasy football, but the idea is that you're put in charge of this fictional football team and you select certain players. So you've got to select a quarterback and a running back and some wide receivers. And if you can build the best team that, that gets the best statistics on a certain Sunday, then, then you, can, you can win the league. I think some people think church like that, maybe it's like playing fantasy church. Like who do you need to draft to guarantee a successful church, right? In the first round, maybe you grab like a really, really good musician who just does a great job on Sundays leading worship. Second round, like a great kids leader. Third or fourth round, maybe a preacher down there somewhere, right? But you, but you got to draft the right people, put them in the right places, and then that's how you build a church. But you see, building a church is not our responsibility. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the very headquarters of hell can do nothing to stop it. So the real question is not, how should we build a church? The real question is, how does Jesus build his church? Jesus, who defeated death and reigns in heaven, he builds his church through ordinary disciples who are fully devoted to him. Like, devoted disciples are the building blocks of the church. Jesus uses unremarkable people who give him their whole souls, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this morning, we're going to study the end of Acts chapter 2, and we're going to observe how, how Jesus builds this church through devoted disciples. And the first thing we see about them is that Jesus builds his church through disciples that are devoted to him. So the very first verb in our text is, the, is devoted. Now, now, the sense of this verb includes the idea of consistency and perseverance. So true devotion is not seen in a moment. It requires time. Like, we've, we've all probably known someone who, who sort of launches onto every new fad, and they're really, really devoted to it for like a week. 
or, or maybe even a month, or maybe it's really devoted, they get a couple months in before they're then devoted to the next fad. Right? We, we know they're not really devoted because devotion takes time. It demands consistency. If you knew a guy who, who dated a different woman every month, you would say he's not devoted to any of them. Maybe he's only devoted to himself. Well, these disciples here, they demonstrate their devotion to Jesus over time with consistency. Now, this came because they understood they were in the last days. Like Peter's sermon earlier in this chapter was, was telling people, listen, the last days are here. The last days came with the coming of the Messiah, and they don't finish till the Messiah returns. And so being in the last days should inspire devotion, not vacation. The fireworks get bigger the closer you get to the finale. Now, that's not always true. If you've ever been to a Durham Bulls game, and seeing the fireworks afterwards, you say the same thing over and over, like, is this the finale? Because the whole thing seems like a finale. You keep saying over and over, and then finally when you get to the finale, you're like, oh, okay, now this is the finale. Because they're, they're bigger, and they're better, and they're louder. Listen, we are closer to the finale of history than these disciples, these early Christians were, which means that we should not have less devotion to Jesus than they have. Now, we often use the word devotion in sports. So if you like watching sports or playing sports, maybe you had a coach who talks about being devoted to the team, being devoted to the sports, right? We use that to describe a, someone who's all in. Look at them, they're, they're devoted to it. Someone who gives it all they got. Someone when things get difficult, they don't quit. They're, they're devoted. But what does it look like to be devoted to Jesus? And we see this in verse 42 as he lists four different things which are true of someone who's devoted to Jesus Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So the church demonstrated their devotion to Jesus by being devoted to the apostolic teaching of Jesus. So the teaching of the apostles about Jesus. Like ever since the church began, this has been its practice. It gathers together and it opens the word of God and it, and it teaches the truth about Jesus. So in Acts chapter 2, you have the Holy Spirit. He comes and he fills the disciples. And when he fills them, one of the obvious results is that they hunger for his word. So the Holy Spirit doesn't fill you so that you'll go do what you think you should do. The Holy Spirit fills you so that you'll read and study and learn and understand his word. You see, a church health, just like human health, comes from a right diet. And the diet which produces spiritual strength, the diet which produces spiritual stamina is a diet which is rich in the word of God. Listen, there is no reason to come to this church to hear what I think. There's very little advice I can give you on my own that is helpful, though I can tell you how to fix a dishwasher. This week was successful. Thank you, yes. But you still need Jesus. That was the point of that illustration. But I, I don't have advice that's worth coming for. There's no reason to come out in the rain, to park on mud, and to come in here to listen to advice I give. I have nothing for you. Right? This is why we, we only offer you the Bible, the Word of God. So if you ever leave this area, if God ever moves you away from this area, and you're looking for a new church, I beg you that at the very top of your list, there should be biblical teaching. 
This is why we do what we do as a church. This is why the middle school and high school students are in here. We want them to see us modeling a love for, a desire for, a hunger for biblical teaching. This is why in the kids' classes, they're gonna have a great time. If you just go by those classes, you see like those are wonderful. The kids are gonna have a great time. But you know what the center of every one of those classes is? It's time in the Word of God, teaching them the truths about Jesus from a young age. This is why when we read the the Bible publicly on every Sunday, we always end the same way. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there were some times, be honest, when we were going through Ecclesiastes and somebody read something that you were like, this is the Word of God? And you weren't sure? Thanks be to God. But we said it because this is true and we remind ourselves of true. You're hearing the word of God and we give thanks for it because this is the only thing strong enough to produce in us faith. Now notice the fact that this is mentioned first is not accidental. Like this is what's always been the mark of a devoted disciple is hunger for the scriptures. Let me just say, if you're a member of Redeemer, then one of your responsibilities is to make sure that what is taught here is the word of God. That if ever an elder, a pastor, a group of elders move away from the word of God, it is your responsibility to return us there. Like this is what must always and only be preached from right here. Now, why is biblical teaching so important? I want you to think about these first Christians. They're all Jewish, which means they grew up in Judaism, which means for, they didn't, they didn't go to a church building that looked like this. They went to a temple. And at that temple, they offered sacrifices and there were priests there. But the ones who were teaching them about this were scribes and Pharisees. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus unrolls the scriptures and he teaches from the scriptures and in doing so and in instituting the new covenant that we talked about last week, right, everything seems to change. And Jesus says, okay, you don't need to go to the temple anymore, you need to follow me. But then Jesus ascends to heaven and you wonder if they're in there going like, how are we supposed to follow you? And this is how. He, he gives them his word, this teaching that shows them how can you practice following Jesus? What does it look like? How how will you ever learn to think differently than the culture around you? And so the first disciples learned to follow Jesus in the midst of a resistant culture by devoting themselves to biblical teaching. I mean, the, the air we breathe is opposed to Jesus Christ, right? And so we learn how to think counterculturally by soaking and immersing ourselves in the teaching of Scripture, I want to encourage you. Some, this, is, this is just another Sunday in some ways, and in other ways, right, it, it feels like a new chapter. And with this new chapter, there's an opportunity maybe for you to say, I need to devote myself more to the apostolic teaching. I need to devote my life more to the scriptures. And so here in January, when, when there's an adult Sunday school class offered, go to it. Devote yourself to teaching. When your community group meets this week, be there. Even if you don't feel like it, even if you're tired, be there because you're gonna gather around in a circle and you're gonna look at the word of God. Be part of a discipleship group. If you're not part of a discipleship group, this is what it looks like to be devoted to the teaching. A few months ago, a couple visited Redeemer for the first time. I was talking to them after the service and you know, just getting to know them a little bit. And there was sort of a pause in the conversation and they looked at me and they, they looked very serious and they said this. They said, we only have one question. What does this church teach about marriage? Now understand what the question really was. 
The question was, do you believe the Bible? Will you unapologetically be devoted to the scriptures even if it stands in the face of cultural pressure? Now listen, devotion to teaching, it assumes more than listening. It also assumes obedience to the teaching. So the early Christians, they don't listen to Peter preach and be like, great job. Post a little clip on on Facebook like, we love Peter, he's the best. And they go home and do the same things they did before. No, no, they, they, they receive the word and then they put it into practice. This is what it means to be devoted, is to, to apply the word to your life. Imagine if you had a friend with a dog and he, he raves about his dog. You know, this is his best friend. And he, and he talks about how this dog is so devoted to him. This dog loves him. He's so committed to him. And you go over to his house and every time he calls the dog, the dog runs away. And you'd be like, I don't think you understand what it means to be devoted, do you? Like, the dog should come. The dog should want to be around you if it's devoted to you. So when we talk about being devoted to the scriptures, it means that we're not just hearing them, we're actually obeying them. We're putting them into practice. And so our devotion to Jesus is revealed by a devotion to listen to his word and a determination to obey it. But notice they are also devoted to gathering together. Verse 42 says, the fellowship. This is the first time we find this word in the New Testament, but it's a word that from this point forward come, becomes almost synonymous with the church itself. Every use of fellowship includes the idea of sharing. Like We, we share life together as a church. We, we participate in a common life. You see, theologically, it works this way. Jesus Christ has united each one of us. Each Christian is united to Jesus by faith, and therefore, we're united to each other as well. And so we share a common life in Jesus Christ. And so the early Christians devoted themselves to this common life. And one way where this works itself out is in church membership. We, we, we get the pattern for church membership in this passage, both verse 41 and verse 47. It says that people are saved, then they're baptized, then they're added to the church. What's that mean? It simply means this. They said, I'm going to be committed to the common life of this local gathering of Christians. I'm just going to warn you, the longer you're on Redeemer, the more you're going to hear about church membership. We're going to talk about Redeemer 101, the membership class. And, it, and here, this is the reason why we do it, because we believe every Christian should be committed to a local church so they can share in the common life. Now, for these first believers, the common life included meeting in the temple and in individual homes. The temple there, outside the temple, not to participate in Judaism, but also to, to, but to have Christian worship gatherings we see that in verse 46. We've tried to model this same practice by, by meeting on Sundays for gathered worship and then meeting in homes throughout the week. Now, we know this, though. Just attending doesn't mean a person participates in the common life. It, it requires more than that. But on the other hand, if you never attend, it's impossible to share in the common life. I just want to encourage you in light of this passage to consider your commitment to the gatherings of Redeemer. Notice these Christians, they're building their lives, they're building their schedules around meeting with other Christians. Like gathering with other Christians is a top priority for them. We live in a, a culture where this type of commitment is foreign. I was talking with a friend who's a pastor 
and he, he was pastoring a church in, in a new area, and, and he, he said he, he discovered this thing he never discovered before. He called it lake culture, that the particular area where he, he pastored was an affluent area, and everyone either had a lake house, their family had a lake house, or they had a friend with a lake house. And so he's like, during the summer, what would happen is that on Friday, everyone would take off from their lake house. There would like, there'd be traffic jams in the middle of nowhere. People were trying to get their lake house. And on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, everyone would drive back. And by everyone, he's like, everyone. Christians devoting themselves to the very same things as non-Christians. And he said it was so sad to see that these Christians were more devoted to their leisure than they were to gathering together as a church. Just imagine in that same situation, a Christian family who every Saturday afternoon drives back from the lake. Every Saturday afternoon. And when people say, like, why do you do that? Why don't you stay up for the whole weekend? They say, because I've got to get back to meet with my brothers and sisters and worship Jesus. Right? That's devotion to the common life. You probably have heard of the Babylon Bee. It's a satirical website, loves to poke fun at Christians and things like that. There's some humorous, I don't know if the articles are humorous. No one ever reads anything but the headlines, right? But I remember one headline a number of years ago I saw, which was, it was both humorous but it was also pointed. It said this, after 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents shocked by daughter's lack of faith. I mean, maybe it's a bit over the top, right? but this type of devotion we see in the text, this type of devotion to the gathering of Christians is steeply declining as more and more Christians embrace the individualism that's promoted by our culture and then reject the commitment seen by these first disciples. So the early Christians, they're showing their devotion to Christ by their devotion to that teaching and their devotion to gathering together. But also verse 42 says, to the breaking of bread and prayer, they're devoted to worshiping together. Now the breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper. Here's what it means is that when they gathered together, the gospel of Jesus was both heard, but it was also seen. Brothers and sisters, we must never assume that we've heard the gospel enough. We must never assume that, that, that it's sufficient. We need regular reminders of God's grace in spite of our sin. And so what we do at the end of every service, we'll do it in a few minutes, is that we will pass out this, this bread, which is broken. We'll pass out this cup that's filled with the juice of crushed grapes and it's a reminder of Jesus who was broken and was crushed in our place. And so it assures us that God loves us this week. So maybe this was a bad week for you. Maybe it was a week that was filled with failure, a week where you gave in to temptation, a week where you fought instead of forgiving. It was a week that was, that, that it, I mean, it would, there were no gold stars on your chart this week. It was all bad stuff. And you're coming today, and you're going, can God really love me? Is it possible that his grace is sufficient? And then we pass out the bread and the cup which show the, the, the broken body, the crushed body of Jesus for you so that you can remember that God's grace is indeed enough. Listen, we need to gather together in corporate worship so that we can sing, so that we can listen, so that we can participate in the gospel. And we need to do it weekly. You know, one of the most common commands in the scripture is the command to remember. To remember. See, we each of us, each, each one of us, we suffer from a case of spiritual amnesia. 
And one of the things we do is we try, like we're going to leave the building here not too long from now, and when you do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start to kick in. Your spiritual amnesia is going to start to kick in. And hopefully you're going to fight it this week. And you're going to fight it this week by, by reading your Bible. You're going to fight it this week by gathering community group. You're going to fight it this week by, by having coffee with another Christian. You're trying to fight against your spiritual amnesia. But the reality is by next Sunday, we desperately need to be reminded. And so we say, this is what is most important. If as we saw last week, our whole being is about fearing God and keeping his commands, then what is the most important thing I do is I come here to remember what God has done for me, to remember who I am in him, to remember his grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Like There's not a week that goes by that you don't need to hear again how God sent his only son to be born as a man to die in the place of sinful men. There's not a week that goes by where you don't need to come and hear about how his grace is bigger than your sin, how he defeated death, how he rose from the grave, how he ascended to heaven, and he did it all so that you could follow him. Listen, you and I need to be devoted to worshiping together. Now, the first disciples, they didn't just look inside to their own sin and need for grace. They looked up to God in prayer. That's the fourth thing we see in verse 42. 26 of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts record someone praying. In fact, most of them are the church praying together. Prayer should be as natural to Christians as breathing. Though it's not, is a, it's hard. But prayer is what reminds us that we live in two worlds, that we're not fully home here on this earth, we're not fully home in this world, but our home is in heaven. Prayer is why the successful church doesn't need to draft wealthy members. Maybe in the church fantasy draft, if you're really savvy, you'd actually pick that really wealthy guy first round. Be like, he can fund everything we need. But the church doesn't need to do that. Why? Because we serve the God who owns everything. And so our resources, all the resources we need come from God. Do you realize God often meets more needs through one praying Christian than 100 wealthy ones? I remember... A conversation I had with Scott Schauberg is probably six or seven years ago. I know it was before we bought the land that this church is sitting on. We were talking about something, I think it was after a service, and, and, and Scott asked me this question. He asked me something about the, the, a, a future building for Redeemer, and I, I don't know how I responded initially, probably with some sort of sigh. I don't know. And then I looked at him and I said, Scott, you don't have an extra couple million dollars lying around, do you? He said, no, but God does. Right, he does. God has everything we could ever need, and he's commanded us to ask him for it. See, the issue is never God's generosity. It's never God's willingness. The issue is our lack of asking there's no doubt that the reason that we are sitting in this building worshiping this morning is because you have been faithful to ask God to provide for us. Right? These walls stand as a testimony. I want you to look around. See these walls? They stand as a testimony of devoted prayer to God that when God's people ask him to work and ask him to provide that God does. Now, we start the first week of every new year with what we call a week of prayer. We don't do it the first week to get it out of the way. Like, oh, we're good for the year. Right? We, we do it the first week of the year 
because we want to set a pattern for the year, that we want this year, this next year, to be a, a year devoted to prayer. Let me give you an example of what that looks like on a practical level. What does it actually mean to be devoted to prayer? So I learned this week that Barry Bisson has texted Tyler Eason nine times in the last two months. And in each text, he's told him ways, specific ways he is praying for him and for Jackie and for Gospel Hope Church. And that's what it looks like on, a, on just a human level to be devoted to prayer. So a church's devotion to Jesus is seen in its devotion to teaching, to gathering, to worshiping, to praying. And so here's what we see in Acts 2. The more that these Christians listened to the word about Jesus, the more they shared their life with the followers of Jesus, the more they celebrated the gospel of Jesus, the more they brought the request to Jesus, the more they saw the power of Jesus at work in them and through them. Look at verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs are being performed through the apostles. So the greater our devotion to Jesus, the more we'll see Jesus Jesus work in and through us. And so when Jesus builds a church, he builds a church on disciples devoted to him. But notice they're also devoted to each other. Jesus builds his church through disciples devoted to each other. See, Jesus and the disciples go together. You can't separate them. Like, it's, it's impossibly devoted to Jesus without being devoted to Christians. Maybe you've heard someone say, maybe you said it yourself, well, I love Jesus, but not the church. And I would lovingly ask you, have you ever read your Bible? Because Jesus never separates the two. In fact, what Jesus says to his disciples is he says, the distinguishing mark of those who love me is the way they love my people. We see it in practice here, beginning in verse 44. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So we see the disciples' devotion to each other in the way they shared their life with each other. And we see it specifically in how they share their time. Now, time may be our most precious commodity. It's the one thing that when you give it away, never comes back. You can give away money, and money can come back. You give away time, time itself does not come back. But notice these Christians, I love this phrase, were together, verse 44. They were together. Like, what's that even mean? Well, if you saw one, you're going to see more than one. Because they, they just were together. When were they together? Well, they just were together. It was just so descriptive of, of their lives, their pattern of life. You know, this only happens if they didn't see their time as their time. Do do you struggle to see your time as your time? This is my time. They don't see this as their time. Because the more you see it as my time, then you're going to have trouble sharing it with others. Now, I know sitting here this morning, we have some church ninjas. People that slip in and slip out each week without anyone noticing they were here. Now, that may be you. And I will commend you, first of all, for the remarkable skill to be able to get in and out without anyone ever knowing you're here. But I want to challenge you that that does not show devotion to others. But maybe you're thinking, Josh, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. And I would say, well, either the thousands of people who made up the early church were all extroverts or the introverts cared enough about their fellow Christians to embrace the discomfort of sharing time and conversation. Like nowhere in our text do we find excuses for keeping to yourself. 
So I wonder, how do you use your time? I mean, we're all busy. No one ever tells me on a Sunday, like, ah, I had nothing to do this week. <laughs> How's your week? Huh, sort of sat around. Like, everyone's busy. You're busy. I'm busy. We're all busy. We've got stuff to do. How do you use your time? Here, here's what I've also never met. I've never met a person who, if they cared enough, could not find time to do the thing they cared about. Like, if, if you care enough, if you want to do something bad enough, if you think it's important enough, you will find time to do it. And so if you want to serve your brothers and sisters at Redeemer badly enough, you will find time to do it. You know, nothing is an adequate substitute for time. You've heard that question, what's more important, quantity time or quality time? We all know the answer, it's both. Both are necessary. If you love someone, if you really want to care well for someone, you need to give them quality and quantity time. And maybe you're thinking, Josh, you don't understand, I don't have time. I'm going to give you an, a fact that is indisputable that every single person sitting in this room has the exact same amount of time today. No one has a minute less or a minute more. Every single one of us has 24 hours a day. So you, you don't have too little time. You just have choices about what you're going to do with your time. Listen, brothers and sisters, time goes fast. The older you get, the more you realize how quickly that time goes by. And so let me just encourage you, use your time to serve other people. Don't waste your time. We can waste our time on so many things. Right? We can waste our time. Some, some people are wasting their time working too many hours. Like, and you, there's a reason. There's always a reason. There's always a reason why you don't work all those hours. But you're wasting your life doing it. Don't waste all your time. Don't waste your time on yourself. My time. I can have my time. Like, don't waste your time scrolling on your phone. I mean, what a vacuum of time just sucks it in. And like a vacuum, it just nothing is produced by it. Use your time. In fact, I would encourage you this. Share your time with the people in this room. Give them your most limited and precious commodity as a token of your love for them. I think this new building presents a new opportunity for you to use your time to serve. Take it that way. Take this as a new opportunity. It's been neat over the last few weeks specifically to see some people who've given a lot of time to serve, people that you, you don't know that they did. I want to I mention two of them. I shouldn't do it because they're, I'm sure I'm going to overlook someone, but you'll forgive me if I did. Cam McLean. He, I think he probably had a hand in putting every single one of these chairs together. And not only that, he has maps in his mind of how to set up the chairs for various numbers depending on how many need to be there. Like he was up here for hours over the last few weeks just building things, setting up, and most people didn't see him. Dan Bear, if you use a restroom and there's a toilet paper holder there or there's paper towel on the wall, and there are, and I shouldn't say if, there are, they are there. Like Dan Bear put them up. He did lots of other things. What motivated these men to do this? This was, they were giving their time to serve you out of love. If you haven't been serving, this is a great time to start. Steve, who heads up our, our ministry to guests, he told me, he's like, if you notice, we have all these beautiful doors now, which means we need more people to stand at them and greet guests and welcome them to our home. Right? How will you use your time to serve others? The early Christians not only share their time with each other, they also share their money in verse 45. 
And don't, don't misinterpret this. This is an easy one to take out of context and say this is some form of communism, but that's not at all what's going on here. This is not some sort of forced redistribution of wealth. This is simply, this is what it's describing. It's describing Christians who are so devoted to each other's good that they notice needs, and when they notice a need, they sell their possessions so that they can meet the need. And that's what it is. It's that simple. Now, their generosity was driven by devotion in the midst of difficulty, but you've got to see what was also true. This type of devotion, this type of generosity only happens when you're in close enough proximity to other Christians that you actually see their needs. I want you to think about parents and children. Like, parents spend so much time with their children that they just see needs, right? They, I mean, they say, oh, I think, we've got to get, I think he's got to have braces. Why? Because they've sat across their child enough meals and seen the crooked teeth enough, helped brush them, that they're like, yeah, there's a need there. Or they see their child squinting and make guessing at words on signs, and they're like, oh, looks like we're going to have to go to the eye doctor. Or they see the holes in the pair of jeans, and they're like, okay, I guess we're going to Coles this afternoon, needs another pair of jeans. Or they hear a stomach growl, and they say, there's no way he needs more food. Right, but it's, it's time and proximity that makes us notice needs, and it's love that makes us meet those needs. See, love is more than a warm feeling. Love is decisive action to put the good of others before your own needs. So when we're commanded in Scripture to grow in love, it's not saying this, try to have warmer feelings for other Christians. When it says grow in love, it says meet their needs even if it requires sacrifice on your part. Sacrifice for their good. Go without so they don't have to. In Justice Week, one member reached out to me because they want they wanted to help a, another family in our church who, who's going through a really tough time. This family has kids. It's, a, it's just been a, a, a severe trial over the last number of weeks. And so this member who reached out to me, I, I love it because they had to think deeply about this family. They had to be praying for this family. And it occurred, this occurred to them. It occurred to them that it's December. You're like, wow, well, stay with me. Occurs in this December, and you have a family who's going through a trial, and this trial is not only costing a lot of money, but it's taking a lot of time and attention. And this member thinks about that mom who might not have time for Christmas shopping and reaches out to me this week and says, if you can get me the list, I'm gonna go shopping. I wanna buy the presents, pay for them myself. I'm gonna wrap them. I'll put the kids' names on them, and then you can deliver them to them so they can be under the tree. Like, this kind of generosity marks Redeemer. By God's grace, I can say that. It marks Redeemer, and we need to stay committed to unusual levels of generosity with the funds that God entrusts to us. Notice one more thing they share. These early Christians also share their food. Now, this is during a time of persecution and drought, and so sharing food was simply a way to meet needs. But even in times of plenty, Jesus and his followers were known for their generosity at the table. See, sharing your table is a way of sharing your heart. Inviting someone to a meal is an invitation to friendship. Do you realize that one of the criticisms leveled against Jesus, you know, if you weren't sure Jesus was perfect, this is the type of criticism they had to find. They said he eats too much with sinners. 
Now listen, it wasn't the meal, it was the love. Right? They saw his love for sinners expressed in a meal. Let me just say, brothers and sisters, this is a simple way for us to care for each other. Eat together. I mean, how's that for sermon application? Eat together. Who can't do that? Sounds fun. Like, practice hospitality. Invite other people into your life and into your home. Like, I would love it if any time a person visited Redeemer for the very first time, they received not just one, but multiple invitations to lunch. I mean, wouldn't it be great if one of the criticisms that was leveled at Redeemer is how we are always eating with people? Oh, that's the church that eats with everyone. Yeah, that's us. Guilty. See, opening your home and table, we call hospitality, is a great way to be a witness to Jesus. One of Jesus' main strategies for reaching people with the good news was through an invitation to dinner. If you grew up in church, you grew up singing a song about Zacchaeus, a wee little man. I realize that's an Irish song. Wee little man. But what happened is he's up in a tree and Jesus sees him. He says, come down and let's go to dinner. And at that meal, his life is transformed. Now there are many people in this room who put great effort into planning meals. Right? You got to buy the groceries, so you got to plan the meal. You got your meal plan. You got all of that. Maybe you're just, you're very careful with your diet, so you're careful about what you buy. And I would just say, if that's you, add one more category to your meal planning. And that's who you're going to eat with. Like, just don't, don't say, oh, I hope it'll happen. Be intentional about it. Make it happen. Like, how can you take something you're going to do anyway? You're going to eat. They're going to eat. Let's infuse this with gospel intention. Sharing a meal was so common amongst the first disciples that it's described in verse 46. Notice, as they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It says these meals were characterized by joy and gratitude. Like no one forced them to share their food together. They did it out of joy. These were not elaborate banquets. The word translated generous simply means sincere or, or modest. So no pretension, no frills. It's just a group of people, they ate, laughed, cared, and thanked God. I mean, I love this picture of the church. The church is a group of people who eat together, who invite others to join them, who do so free from anything artificial or contrived, and all the time they're praising God and caring for those around them. Now notice how this passage concludes. It concludes in this fascinating way, verse 47. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Because of the evident devotion of the disciples, person after person is turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. How does this happen? See, their devotion to Jesus Christ combined with their devotion to each other made them stand out. It made them strange. It made them unique. And it made the church compelling. See, the early Christians stood out because they were so devoted to Jesus, they were so devoted to each other, and they were devoted in tangible ways that people looked at them and thought, wow, that's unusual. That's strange. I've never seen anything like it. But I really want to know more. Can I give you an example of compelling devotion? The first time Pam Rabel showed up at Redeemer, six or seven years ago, she showed up because her neighbors, Rich and Nan, kept inviting her to come. She kept saying no, but they were good neighbors. They were kind, and they were friendly, and they finally unlocked the secret to get her to come. Rich went over there, and he said, will you come to church with us? 
we'll buy you lunch afterwards. And she said, well, I might as well come. I'll get a free lunch out of it. So she comes. She enters the door. She's an unbelieving Catholic. And then she's stunned by what she sees. In fact, she says there were two things that really stunned her. The first was the singing. She, she, in fact, she thought that we must sing the same songs every Sunday because everyone knew them and everyone sang them out so loudly. The other thing that stunned her was the fact that everyone had Bibles and they opened them and they flipped to the passages. Let me just say, side note, this is why it's good to bring a paper Bible. No one knows what you're doing on your phone except you, God, and the devil. So like you flip your, flip your paper Bible, might be a testimony to someone. So we're flipping in our Bibles and she, she's never seen anything like this. Like, and so the evident devotion she saw to the Lord, to his word, and to each other is what God used to save her. Now, devotion like this is only compelling if it's accompanied by great joy and pure motives. If you try to mandate or script this, this isn't compelling. So if you leave the lake house early because the pastor yells at you, like, that's not compelling. If you sign up for nursery just so everyone knows how helpful you are, it's not compelling. If you give money because you're made to feel guilty, that's not compelling. But when you, with a glad and generous heart, joyfully devote yourself to Christ and his people, that kind of devotion is compelling. This is why Jesus repeatedly says that our love for him and our love for each other is a powerful evangelistic tool because in those moments, we're modeling how Jesus came, how Jesus loved, and how Jesus gave himself for us. Listen, all around you are people that are longing for deep, meaningful relationships. People are lonely. People in your neighborhood are lonely. People in your office are lonely. People in your school are lonely. People are lonely, and they want real, deep, meaningful relationships, and they don't know where they're found. Not only that, they're also longing for something transcendent, something that seems to last, something bigger than them and what they see around them. And so when they see it in your devotion to Christ, they see it in your devotion to his people, they long for a similar experience. It's like a kid who grows up in a broken home and he spends a holiday with a happy family. Listen, he looks around and he says, some of these rules are weird. And he's surprised by some of the things they do and some of the things they don't do. But if given the choice, he would love to be part of this family. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to praise God because I believe there is compelling devotion here. I'm grateful that people are seeing a difference in us. A few years ago, one of our members told me about a conversation they had with family who live in town. One of their family members who doesn't attend Redeemer was encouraging some other people to go to church here. And he said this, they're different at that church. This is the work of Jesus in us. Not something we've done. But this is what devotion to Jesus does. Devotion to Jesus makes us different. And that difference is compelling. And so Jesus uses the devotion of his people to build his church. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask just for grace to grow in our devotion to you. There's not a Christian sitting in this room who would say, well, I'm devoted enough. There's not a Christian in this room who's saying like, yeah, I think I'm good. We all say like, man, my devotion is so weak. I'm more devoted so often to my own desires, my own needs, my own wants than I am to you and to 
my brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, we want to grow in our devotion. Lord, we know that this is how you build your church. And so we ask you to continue to build your church. It does not belong to us, it's yours. And so, Father, create in us greater devotion for you. Help us to be committed to, your, to the teaching, to prayer, to gathering together, to worshiping together. And Lord, produce in us a, a generosity of time and money and resources that, that shows that we value you and your people. We value that over anything else. So God, we ask you to do this in us. We do this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.